Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I am honored this week to be joined by Mehdi Magsunia, who is the founder and CEO of One Health, a uh, innovative company out in Silicon Valley. So Mehdi, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you taking the time. Hey, thank you, Maxwell, for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome. So maybe give us a little bit of background on, you know, you know, where you went to school, where you've, uh, you know, been at before One Health, and then kind of maybe just a, glo- we'll obviously get into the details, but kind of a global overview of what you guys are working on at One Health. Sure, sure. By the way, um, I, I love your name, Da Vinci. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, I uh, my background is I was one of those uh, sort of uh, kids who, um, from an early age, wanted to build and innovate. So uh, early on, I, I was about six or seven, told my mother I wanted to be a scientist. I didn't quite know what that meant, but uh, you know, I was taking apart uh, television sets and putting them back together, trying to learn how it was made. Um, so always knew what I wanted to do, which was computer science and, um, and, and design. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to end up at Berkeley and Stanford and learn computer science, and then got into the high tech, um, you know, early on building a bunch of different companies um, in different spaces. Uh, I started in, uh, in sort of the mobile uh, communication space, went into commerce, and now I'm in healthcare. Very excited about healthcare. Um, feel like um, it's uh, like the early days of internet, but even bigger, and the impact is more, uh, I think, emotional and real. Like when we were sort of writing the first uh, instances of email or instant messaging applications, it was exciting, but um, you couldn't really explain to people why they would care. In healthcare, um, the impact is so much more and and, um, it just feels good to sort of modernize and impact uh, the healthcare industry. So pretty excited to be in this field. That's awesome. Thanks for that, that overview. I think that's a really interesting insight you made there where kind of to the early days of the internet, I think as you know, medicine and healthcare at large is so slow to adopt new technologies or new ways of doing things, as I'm sure you you know all too well. <laughs> um, so I think that that's an interesting point, and I I agree with you. I think there's there's it's exciting. There's a lot of room for growth out there. So yeah, tell us about One Health. How how did you guys start this company? You know, what was kind of the the inspiration? What was the clinical need you were trying to to solve uh, solve, and I guess continuing trying to uh, working on solving? Yeah. Um- you know, so so a lot of uh, my my partners at One Health and a lot of my friends in the Valley that that build uh, tech platforms, 
uh, you know, we recognize in, in other industries, um, you have built uh, these very, what we sort of call scalable uh, platform technologies, right? You guys intuitively use some of these platforms every day. So your, you know, uh, iPhone is a platform that lots of your applications run on it. LinkedIn is a platform. Google is a platform. These are platforms that Lots of people in the economy are using in a very scalable fashion. And we recognize that in healthcare, these platforms are missing. So, you know, about five years ago, we started looking and said, you know, um, ideally, you just want to go somewhere and very quickly search for your test results, but you don't have that site. You can't find it. Um, so if I, as a consumer, want to get my test results, I have to log into 16 different platforms. They all have different formats. None of them can talk to each other, um, you know. So we started identifying these uh, areas that we thought there should be a very scalable system out there, and and they don't exist. And and in healthcare, given the size of this industry, there are actually hundreds of these um, platform needs, right? Uh, you know, there there you can just keep going in terms of like there should just be a service to verify and validate your insurance. There should be a service to tell you. You know, if a certain service is within your insurance payment, uh, you know, network or not, all these should be like simple services. They just go in and, and you're beginning to see some of them come come about in healthcare. I think GoodRx is, you know, an example of that where you can go and look for any prescription and you see a price out there across different stores. So these services were needed. Uh, me and my bunch of my friends, we said, hey, let's just go build one. Um, we started uh, looking at diagnostics mostly because uh, in the field of diagnostics, um, almost 90% of your care decisions are made after a test. It is the most important part of your data set. Uh, it is the least uh, sort of fuzzy, right? A lot of your clinical data is, you know, they ask you, what's your pain like? Or, you know, how do you feel today? Uh, a lot of the notes that doctors write are inconsistent from one doctor to another in terms of the language they use. So it's very difficult to sort of build a scalable data set, uh, but it's very easy to do so around diagnostics, right? Because uh, when you get your genetic test done or your A1C test done or your uh, you know uh, comprehensive panel of, of blood tests done, the, the data is pretty consistent. The format of the report might look different, but the underlying data is very consistent. So we started to sort of just create a, a single platform that understands and consolidates all that data into a single, uh, you know, sort of scalable standard platform. That's what One Health is. We are we are talking to all the labs out there. Uh, we process all different types of tests, and we essentially try to help people get access to testing in a cheaper, faster, simpler fashion. Um, so if we uh, succeed at doing this at scale, and we're obviously early on and, and, and we're doing less than 1% of the testing in the US, but if we actually do succeed to get to a very large scale, you should see one health in your life in a very simple fashion, right? You, you, would, you would hear that somebody ordered a test on you. You would be able to go in and say where that test is. You get all your results across all the labs in a single platform. And you don't have to log into 16 different platforms and, and do integration across different hospital labs and independent labs and genetic labs. And so it all will sort of become simple. 
the way that other platforms have made search simple or your resume on LinkedIn simple, that, that sort of model, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So the obviously, it sounds like the patients would be the end user, but are are you also working on where physicians themselves would be uh, the end users? Because one of the most frustrating things is, you know, you know, you have a new patient or a new admission and you don't have any information about this pa- unless they've been seen in your system. If, you know, you have to, I think I saw something the other day that the healthcare industry is still one of the highest purchasers of fax machines, which is just crazy. <laughs> um, so I yeah. think would, would, yeah. this, would this help with that, with kind of, you know, getting data faster and more easily accessible to the to the clinicians uh, for new patients. <laughs> yeah, in fact, um, when when you design these sort of very large scale uh, systems, you have to think of all the users, right? So, very similar to how uh, Uber uh, has an application that you log in as a as a as a user. Uh, there is an app you open as, as a driver, and there's an app you open up as an enterprise administrator to see how your employees have taken Uber rides. So on One Health, you can log in as a physician and you get a totally different view than when you log in as a patient uh, versus when you log in as a lab uh, versus when you log in as a payer. So these support all of the players in the ecosystem. And you have to design it in such a way that you meet the needs of, of all of the players. Otherwise, the platform will not uh, will not work well. So absolutely, at One Health, you can go into it as a physician. You can sign up for free, and you can uh, you know enter patients and order tests on those patients across all the labs that are connected to the One Health network. Um, and you can get the results in a standard format. And you can actually do that today. You can just go log in for free. <laughs> Say I'm a physician, create your patients. So all of that is built in uh, into the platform. And we, we spend a lot of time thinking about what does the physician need to get as a, as a value? What should we simplify in their life? What are we simplifying the patient life? What are we simplifying the lab's life? And uh, what are we simplifying the hospital and the payer's uh, sort of life? These are all the sort of major players in this, uh, in this process. Very interesting. I'm curious... How have you been able to get the payers on board? I guess would have been some maybe some hurdles or some pushback even that you've gotten from them. And I guess how is that? How have you been, have you been able? Because I, I I don't know that much about it, but I know that that can kind of hinder things, if you will, with especially with new getting new technologies involved. <laughs> yeah. So so today, um, the way we handle uh, payers is we actually have our lab partners uh, tell us which uh, insurance companies they're in network with. And then we support them in terms of uh, processing claims to those insurance companies. Um, so as you know, the, the market is highly fragmented. Uh, some labs are in network and some are not in network. Uh, we sort of help labs manage those relationships and, and their claim processing. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly complicated, fragmented process. Unfortunately, uh, that's another thing that doesn't exist uh, in a very clean fashion in the U.S. There are no um, services or APIs, as we call it, in the in the health industry, where you can simply go in and say, "Give me all the labs that are in the United Healthcare Network." Now, I'm sure somebody's going to call me tomorrow and say there is an API, but let's just say those APIs are not very accessible and they're not free. So the, the problem with healthcare is every one of these relationships requires time to establish, and then. You know, there are inconsistencies in these services. Um, and and to, to just make it very clear, like in the banking world, you can right now call a set of APIs and ask, 
uh, I want to know all the routing numbers of all the banks in the U.S. And there's an API for that. You can, you know, everything has been turned into a very simple service that engineers can write code to. In healthcare, those sort of services don't exist. So everything becomes a long, manual, tedious, and fragmented, fragile process, if that makes sense. Um, so, so we are sort of getting there by when we come across a service that doesn't exist, we sort of put a placeholder and implement it. But we're very conscious of the fact that we're hoping another team in the U.S. is thinking about solving that. And they would walk up one day and say, we have created a very scalable you know, platform for finding every in-network relationship. And then we would just plug them in and stop doing it ourselves. Uh, but these are some of the shortcomings in the healthcare industry today in the U.S. is these sort of very robust service providers don't exist. And, and so you end up having a lot of custom, badly designed code running in healthcare that I'm sure you are a victim of as a doctor. <laughs> they probably are giving you login to systems that you pull your hair out because you don't want to log in and it's complicated and it's you know 15 different steps to get something done. Uh, so it makes your life very complicated because of the lack of these services, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I feel like I have so many logins, it's not even funny. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 no, I, I can understand that for sure. I'm curious. So it sounds like, you know, are you working in other countries and maybe like, you know, a country like the UK, which has like, you know, the National Health Service, you know, where predominantly most of the physicians and the patients are in that area? Is that something where you're finding more ease of adoption of, of your technology? No, um, frankly, um, the, the notion that that a single payer system in the UK is simpler is not as valid as people think. Um, UK also deals with a lot of legacy infrastructure that's that's fragmented and broken. Unfortunately, healthcare on a global basis is a very uh, old infrastructure. So um, I don't think you will see a lot of differences between here and the UK. Yeah, you, you're dealing with a single payer, uh, but that that's that doesn't mean that that payer is is sitting on a modernized software stack. They're in fact sitting on a very old legacy, and they have the same issues. And and in some ways, uh, when you when you go to any other country, it's almost like you went just to another state, right? They're they're not as massive as the U.S. They're size of like a, of a certain state. So we do see consistency on a state-by-state -state basis, but they're all sitting on very old legacy technology. So help, nowhere, nowhere in the world have I gone into healthcare and, and suddenly said, wow, there has been a 20-year investment in R&D in, in and you're sitting on a modern technology stack that just doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if that makes sense. It's just like, you know, it sort of reminds me of the early days of I started at at and in the in the 1990s. And we had that issue, right? The, the telecommunication infrastructure before wireless was a lot of bad infrastructure that had aged, right? AT&T, I remember as an engineer, we would look at the code and you had to, you know, uh, you had to take a shot at night because you didn't want to deal with that code. It's like, this is really awful. This is like, was written 1950s. And, and we were trying to put a new wireless network on top of it, which everybody knew it wouldn't work. And eventually we didn't, right? We stood up an alternative network to your legacy home phone. And increasingly now after 30 years, you're unplugging your main line and using your cell phone. So we rewrote the whole telecom infrastructure from scratch. 
because the landline infrastructure was just not scalable, right? Um, so healthcare is going through the same thing right now. It, this infrastructure will not scale. And, you know, it's obvious to me sitting here, it's not very obvious to all the hospital administrators <laughs> holding on to their landlines, thinking that it's going to continue to work. It's going to at some point age out and you have to deal with a whole new infrastructure. Yeah, no, I can see that. I mean, where where I went to medical school, there was a hospital we that I rotated that was still using paper charts. And I mean, this like like I was telling you, I'm still in my residency, so that that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know, there's in radiol in my field of radiology. I mean, it wasn't that long. I mean, it was a couple decades ago, but it wasn't that long ago when we were still using like you know printout films to to read images versus you know before it was all digitized. And you know, I think the field of pathology right now is kind of going through a transition where they're you know, trying to start digitizing their, you know, their slides and things like that. So it's, um, you know, I think, I think your point is actually, I see it just even from the the clinical side that things are somewhat antiquated in a way of, of these kind of these old guard of ways of ways of doing things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the first wave of digitization in industries is they grab what they had that came off the fax machine and they're turning into a PDF and they store it on a file system. And they call that digitization. That's that's just archiving, right? It's the same format. It's the same document. You really didn't advance it. You just took a scan of it and you put it on a, on a shared folder. The next wave of digitization is very interesting, right? So when, when you went from a copy of a resume that was scanned in to LinkedIn, where the data is, is dynamically linked at a real-time basis, you can click on it company name and go to the company and from the company go to the employees. And that sort of linkage of diagnostic information is very interesting, which is what we are doing. The the sort of scanning of a report to PDF is not very interesting because you're sort of sitting there clicking on a PDF saying, take me to the definition of what this uh, you know gene means. And, and your PDF will just keep beeping saying, I don't know what you mean by clicking on the screen. <laughs> That sort of the, the next level of digitization of data in healthcare will, will unleash a, a different level of, of quality and service that's coming. That's much more exciting than what you see today, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's not just, you know, pooling data together and, and like you said, archiving it. It's, it's in a way also like maybe you see these lab values from all these different clinics that a patient's been to, but also like, what does that mean? You know, in a sense, I mean, obviously as a physician, yeah. you, you want to interpret it, but you know, like you said, maybe there's a new genetic test that you've never even heard of or not that familiar with, and you want to learn more about what this means and how you can use this. Yeah, you know, I, I run into I run into health systems that say, well, we have we have digitized our infrastructure, and what they really mean is we have we have scanned all the records and put it on file. But if you ask them a simple question, like, well, right now, just open up a portal and and tell me how many female patients that had a BMR of 35 had a genetic variant in the last two days. And they look at me like, well, we can't do that. It's like, well, that means your data is not really digitized. It's just, you have a bunch of scanned files. Yeah. You, essentially you can't, you can't really query through your data. You really don't have access to your data. You just have files online that you can, you can read. That level of, of storage and archiving is, is not really advancing it's it's record keeping, right? It's cleaning up your data, but it's not really bringing your data to life. To bring data to life, you have to understand the underlying elements of data as a first class object. So in in this in a in a real system, you know, in our system, for example, we understand every test result as a fundamental active data set. 
you're not keeping PDFs. We understand that you just did a genetic test and what that tumor you know analysis means. We understand what what it means when you do a germline analysis of somebody. You understand the underlying SNPs for doctor. I think we do back and you probably understand. We can follow the the population health data real time in the data set, which is very unusual in healthcare. Right? Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I imagine even from both like internal just kind of assessments and then also doing like like large scale clinical research, this would be extremely valuable because in the old days, it's kind of relied on like people like me or medical students to kind of comb through all that data <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, put it all together and everything, which is if you had it like one place where you could easily search and itemize it, that, that, that'd be, that would change the game. <laughs> yeah. That would be like, that would be like having uh Google in healthcare, right? Like yes. you're just not used to going to Google and saying, what's the address of this business? But in healthcare, you can do that with your patient data. Like just telling me how many of my patients had the following variant in the last 24 hours. You should be able to do that really fast and quick and easy, but that just doesn't exist, right? Interesting, interesting. So you alluded a little bit to this. What has been some of the obstacles you faced with like the health systems? Because as you know, the health systems are, you know, they can be very bureaucratic. Like you said, they can be a little bit, you know, slow to change or slow to adopt things. What have been kind of some of the obstacles or questions you've received and how have you, um, you know, tried to overcome those or, or answer those questions? Yeah, the challenges in, in the health systems in the U.S. is these are massive businesses, right? There's a lot of complexity um, and they're getting bombarded with uh, innovation, right? They're getting calls every day saying, here's a new cardiovascular device, here's a new cardiovascular app, here's a new pain medication, here's like, so the number of calls they're getting is just so, so high, right? And for them to process through innovation right now, itself is your first class problem, right? Like, which it would be, it's the same thing as as in the early days of mobile phone, consumers suddenly had a thousand applications, you don't know which one you want to download. So healthcare systems are getting bombarded with solutions and, and just getting their attention is the number one problem. Then even if you get their attention, uh, their ability to deploy innovation is very difficult for them, right? They don't, they're in a, they're, they're where enterprise software was 1995, right? So if you went to uh, McDonald uh, in 1995, or if you went to Citigroup or Golden Sachs, Goldman Sachs, or you went to... Um, I know Visa, and you said, here's a new innovation you should deploy. They didn't have the infrastructure, right? The, the IT infrastructure wasn't rich enough to deploy innovation. Uh, they were all running on IBM <laughs> in 1995. IBM didn't have very sophisticated partnership infrastructure. And uh, they would say, well, that would take us two years to integrate, come back, and we might be able to put a new reporting subsystem in place. And it took 10 years um, for the enterprise space to deploy innovation, right? So you, you have to wait until 2005 before um, in the enterprise space, people realize that there is an application for marketing, for advertising, for employee management, for HR, for finance. Now in the, in the US enterprise space, there are hundreds and hundreds of software applications highly customized for different industries and segments, right? In healthcare, uh, you essentially have one system called Epic running the whole department. It's trying to be the best application for the, for the cardiovascular, for pain, for MSK, for 
oncology. Like, so, and you don't have an infrastructure for innovation, right, in healthcare today. So even if you brought the best solution to the market, it would take you literally a year to get somebody to deploy. And when they do, because the infrastructure is very advanced, they tend to run into deployment issues, adoption issues. Um, so, so it would take time. I, I, I tell people, if you're coming into healthcare thinking you can just deploy an app and succeed, it's a bit naive, right? The infrastructure doesn't exist and you have to be patient enough and you have to be clever enough to understand what it is you can and can't do and in which part of the market, right? There, there are parts of the healthcare market you can innovate faster because they're more nimble, you know, they're, they're nursing homes and the clinics and urgent care centers. They're more nimble, they adopt faster. And then you get into these large healthcare systems, very difficult to navigate, right? And it's not that you have very good people, very good intention. In fact, I have to say, it's I've worked in a lot of different industries I've rarely ran into an industry where there were so many good people with good intentions. I, I just sit in some of these rooms where the nurses and the doctors are trying to solve a problem. And it's amazing how many good people are in this industry and how good intention they are and how hard they're working. <laughs> Unfortunately, the underlying tools we have given them is very primitive. So, so it's sort of, I, I leave some of these conversations in pain because I feel like you know, the same group of people with the same intention in finance have so many modern tools in transportation, in logistics, in, you know, HR. And and you run into healthcare and they're like, they're given really bad tools. And, and they're like, they don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the tool sets. And you're asking them to to pick up problems that are very complex. And, and I feel for them. I feel like, oh, my God, you guys work hard. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. I think I think our lives could be probably made a lot easier by by technology, and I think that's an interesting comparison to some of these other, you know, like in finance oh, or incredible, <laughs> incredible amount of time that goes into just it's incredible the amount of time that goes into just keeping track. I, I'm watching. So as a product person, I walk into these hospitals and I watch people's behavior, and I'm looking at the amount of inefficiency just keeping track of. And these are sensitive data sets, right? So. Like in order for them not to make a mistake, they have to keep checking the paper three times. What was the prescription and what was the order? And does the name of the patient match? And and you're watching this saying, oh my God, there's like almost 30% of the time is going into overcoming shortcomings of systems, right? This is like, it's a, it's a crazy amount of time <laughs> that goes into it. I also, yeah, I mean, one thing, you know, as you know, just day to day, we try to keep track of our patients and what's going on with them and you know, you know, their labs that, you know, what was the recent updates and yeah, like you said, like Epic can make certain lists and things like that, but you, but I, I haven't met someone who just simply relies on that. I mean, maybe if they're, you know, sharp enough, they can keep it all in their head, but most of us have to write things down. We have to change the way that thing is. And there's not a lot of, you know, maybe I'm just naive to it, but I don't, I feel like there's not a great tool out there for like, even just day to day, keeping track of like what's going on with your patients in real time. And having that all like at your fingertips, you know, you have to comb through all this stuff just to even keep track of everything. <laughs> no, and and honestly, there isn't. Um, and and to put it in perspective, I mean, it's not. This is not hard to see. It, just go to a modern uh, marketing team in any other industry. Let's go, you know, marketing in in the auto industry, marketing in the uh, shoe industry. 
and ask him how many vendors, software vendors are providing them applications for just modernizing their task, just to run marketing. There are at least a hundred different software platforms just to optimize marketing for uh, the team at Nike. <laughs> just to give you an example. And then you, you, you go into a hospital and you look at oncology and they're like two. And, and you compare, like there's a team running marketing for Nike and there are more software people solving their problems then you watch an oncology department and there are two teams and the two teams serving them are not good software people. The only reason they're there is because they sort of happen to legacy to get there. And I, I don't mean to be, you know, I'm not being negative, but it's not that they're not good intention people. These are not the best software programmers. So like the tools that are providing to oncologists or to cardiovascular people to pain, you don't watch those platforms and you say, oh my God, this just blows me away. This is the best piece of software I've seen. So you, you're in comparison, the number of people coming to rescue to make your life easier just is not high, right? You don't have that sort of competitive space of innovation that's driving the care pathway forward, right? So sure. it puts a lot of the burden on your shoulders as doctors because you don't have the tools. Where you go to finance and somebody's doing, I don't know, uh, for God's sake, somebody's doing like short, you know, short stock exchange and, and they have like 15 different tools. Give me the trending, how many stock collapsed in the past two days, you know, and, and then you go into like a healthcare situation. It's like, show me across the US how many people had this condition the past 24 hours, what therapies worked and what medications or the side effect. None of this data is really just available. It, it's just difficult to see how, how primitive that infrastructure is for healthcare. That's interesting. You know, as as you know, kind of one of the big hot topics in healthcare tech is is AI and how that, you know, solves so many problems and 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 all that. And especially in my field of radiology, I think it's been earlier to adopt that than others. <laughs> um, I'm curious where where has AI gonna play a role in in I guess in general? Like, I, 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 I studied <laughs> AI at Berkeley. My 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 undergrad degree was in fuzzy logic and artificial intelligence. And honestly, I think it's a lot of noise and buzzword, right? People who talk about AI in healthcare most often don't understand what AI is. And, and I think it's overblown. Um, and the reason for that is healthcare just needs basic infrastructure tools right now. So it's sort of, it's sort of hard to, you know, to go into, into a field that has almost no, no good infrastructure and say, I'm going to take you from nothing to advanced AI. You don't even have big data sets that are aggregated in a clean fashion for an AI, any AI engine to learn. Now, there are very few exceptions. Like you might, you might argue that imaging is an area where, you know, because you're taking an image and that image tends to be standard, maybe AI algorithms can actually be trained. That that's that's an interesting exception. But just to be clear, that's an exception. Almost no other area in, in healthcare have I seen enough clean data getting aggregated with enough of a semantical meaning for AI engines to learn, right? And 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 when they do so, when they aggregate the data, they do it with such a high cost and in such an inorganic fashion that that you sort of are watching it saying, it's like you work so hard to create a data set that only has a hundred thousand patients. And you want to now create an AI engine on top of it. And, you know, it's like you only think about AI engines when you have a clean infrastructure that's aggregating data at a tremendous rate. Like, look at Google Photo. 
Google Photo is a, is a beautiful example of you're aggregating millions of pictures of people every second in an, an organic fashion. You're not working very hard. People are just uploading pictures all the time, right? So for you as an AI engineer to sit there and say, I'm going to write an algorithm to recognize a face, it's fairly easy because you're getting a thousand faces a minute. <laughs> so you will test yourself very quickly. Did I recognize the right face? Is the algorithm getting better? Is it, is it working? That sort of environment where you have massive aggregation of data in, an, in a cost-effective fashion, AI algorithms make sense. In healthcare, you don't have the basic infrastructure. So people come to me and say, we're building AI for X or Y. I'm like, you don't, have the, you don't even have the infrastructure for payment. You can't even make insurance payments scalable. Like how would you bring an AI engine into an environment where your underlying data assets are so costly to assemble in a clean fashion? And so, so think of AI engines only work if the underlying data set is really, really clean. You know, mm -hmm. like, like a face is a face, you see it. In healthcare, every time somebody brings me a data set, half of the data has been manually cleaned. Like even the claims code don't match and, and the notes don't match. And like, and so you're gonna spend all your time cleaning data. You're not gonna advance any AI algorithms. So I think it's a lot of sort of excitement where we should be focusing on building basic infrastructure, right? This sure. is like, you don't have the road system and people are talking about, I want to test the electric car. It's like, for God's sake, you don't have the road system yet. <laughs> you can't even get a diesel car on these roads because the infrastructure is so bad, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I remember someone talking about an interesting application for AI would be like tracking lab data, exactly like what you're doing, where, because, you know, so many clinicians and part of it is because we're just so busy. We look at the most recent, you know, we look at the current and maybe like the last one, you know, what it was three months ago or whatever, or, you know, what it was yesterday. But imagine if you could have something tell you the trend over the last, you know, couple of years or, you know, or something like that, you know, especially for like a primary care physician. I, I'm curious if you thought about ways of, of integrating something like yeah. that into what you guys are doing. Yeah. We are, we are, we are providing that, but that's actually not AI, honestly. That's just, those are very simple rule-based notification systems. And we are building that into the platform. But, you know, if you tell my engineers that's AI, they would sort of smile and, and walk away. That's not AI. That's that's just providing uh, simpler reporting for physicians, right? Enabling you to get faster analytics. Uh, so AI would be um, when, when you when you um, can infer and, and decide on, on complex patterns that are not obvious, right? And difficult to do, uh, and and that's just that's a very different level of algorithm and functionality. Um, I think imaging is where you're going to see AI. Actually, honestly, that's where. Um, and because we're doing so much optimized AI algorithms in face recognition, applying those uh, you know sort of visual recognition algorithms to imaging, uh, it will probably be your fastest path to to success. But uh, the rest of what people are talking about is mostly just advanced notification analytics. Um, and that's coming. I think that's that's just the basics of infrastructure you need to build. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, it's funny. I, you know, you hear, it's interesting to hear you talk, talk about how, you know, some of these uh, statements about AI are maybe even overblown or not even where people fully realize you know, like you said, that's not necessarily, technically that's not AI. It's, it's, it's funny how, <laughs> cause it's, it's such a, like you go to these conferences and stuff and it's such a, like, everybody's talking about it. Everybody's like presenting about it. And it's just. No, and, right. and my head of engineering, <laughs> my head of engineering is a, is an old friend. And, and every time he, he's new to healthcare, I drag them out of, uh, out of mobile and, and, and uh, communication to healthcare. 
And every time he meets people and they tell him about AI and then they explain what he's doing, he looks at me and he says, that's literally like four lines of code that we, we would in engineering, we would call it a lookup table. <laughs> and, and they describe it as AI. And you're like, that's not, that's like looking at a bike and saying that's a, that's an electric car. That's so simple a piece of code. You know, it's not even close to being AI. <laughs> the problem is there's there's this you know there's a, this marketing buzz going on where they want to, unfortunately, in healthcare, uh, point solutions that are solving a simple problem need to extract a lot of dollars, right? So from, from a marketing perspective, and if you walked up to someone and you said, uh, and I don't want to name someone or, or say something that would insult somebody in the in the market, but Think of like, if I walked up to you and said, this is a simple lookup table, you will pay me a thousand a month for it. But if I said, this is an AI engine, you might pay me 10,000 a month for it. <laughs> so there's a lot of marketing going on, uh, packaging things that are fairly simple and not very um, protective from a software perspective. They put the AI brand on it to protect their position in the market. But long-term it's gonna wash out. None of these things are very sophisticated piece of software. and they can be replicated very easily, very cheaply, and you can't you can't protect it through patents. These are not and I've been through a lot of markets where people try to do that. They say like my what I did is so unique. And any court of law listening to the underlying technology realize that's just not true. There's no there's no secret sauce in what you're doing in that code. Interesting. Uh, I, another thing uh you mentioned I think when you were first talking about giving us an overview of the company was was how to you know help improve costs because as you know that's such a ever going problem in the U.S. healthcare system especially is you know how do we cut costs how do we keep costs low keep things efficient I guess how is your technology uh, helping with that specifically you know the, the way you you generally in the market lower cost is you increase supply right you increase availability of testing. So the problem in the healthcare market today is um, you have very few competitors. So let's just take an example of a genetic test, right? So uh, a, a genetic test that, that you charge $1,000 for in the market today, um, the underlying technology for running it might cost you 100 bucks. And the reason the cost structure is so much higher is the number of providers are not that high. So you have very few choices for running a complex uh, molecular test. So the way you drop the price down is you allow people to compete. And the problem with competition today is, you know, um, it's very difficult to come to market in healthcare and and to be a competing lab, right? And and I'm sure you intuitively understand that because when you go to do certain tests, you might have one vendor offering that test in your EMR, EHR, one, not two, just one. <laughs> so in any market where there's only one provider of anything, you have pricing control. So all we're doing is we're essentially taking away friction so that more people can enter the market. Right? You're trying to make sure that when you as a doctor, you go to order, you at least see three labs or four. <laughs> right? If I can get you to see three or four labs, the price will naturally be more competitive. Because as a, as a physician or even just as a, as a consumer, you could say, well, if there are four people and they're identical tests, can I offer, can I get the, the, the cheapest one that's closer to me? Right? So you're trying to introduce competition in the market by taking the friction away. Right now, for a lab to show up on your menu on your EHR, they have to have an army of engineers to, to integrate with Cerner and Epic and, 
you know, years and years of coding to end up there and, and they can't afford it. So, so you don't see competition in your, in your product offering. Oh, I see. So making it not only making all the data more accessible, but also those companies that are responsible for generating these, the lab results, uh, allowing them even more, they themselves more access to yeah, just, the healthcare system. You should system. have more labs competing for your business, right? Mm -hmm. So you should be in a position where you want to go order any tasks. You see a healthy group of, of labs competing for your business. And, and frankly, you should sort of see what's the closest lab to me with the fastest turnaround time that has, you know, had a high customer satisfaction. Like, and all of that is measurable. Like in the past 10 orders, you know, did you turn around, did you turn around in 24 hours or, or less? And, you know, are you, are you, a, you know, reliable, clear certified lab and and if you get a bunch of those on your menu you naturally will have more competition sure sure no that makes sense that makes sense i guess what what are your guys like future directions where you got where, what's like next the next steps where are you guys hoping to go uh with kind of like the next six to 12 months what are your your milestones you're hoping to shoot for we are uh, we are very much focused on right now um putting more testing products and labs in front of our physician network. So what we're doing is uh, making sure that more and more uh, labs that are out there providing uh, testing services can join our network and therefore provide their offerings to the market, help them come to market, help them connect to you as a physician, others as physicians on your EHRs, EMRs, and, and systems out there. And to make that whole process just simpler for everybody involved, that's our focus. and. If we succeeded this by end of this year, we would be over a hundred different labs across all fifty states um, on the One Health platform, and and we continue to add those labs to our network every month. So um, hopefully, you will see more and more labs light up across the U.S. You will have more and more choices, uh, you know, more and more providers. And and your patients will get better and better service, uh, and the process will get simpler and simpler. And you feel like, wow, okay. And and just intelligence built into the platform, right? So if you experience One Health, we will let you know if the test isn't being completed. We will let you know uh, if the insurance didn't approve or didn't pay. We will let you know. It's all the track. The platform is just providing a lot more visibility uh, to the underlying process to everybody involved, not just you. The patient would know that there was a test ordered on them that they haven't completed. The lab would know that the test was ordered and the sample hasn't arrived. So that sort of notification will be visible to everybody as to what's not working in the process. Very interesting. Very interesting. I'm curious, what what have you guys done in terms of like, just as a startup, like fu uh, funding wise, like, wh like where are you guys at in that kind of sequence of things? And uh, what's kind of, do you have we any have like raised, funding? Uh, we have raised two rounds. Um, okay. And, um, you know, in, in the past... Uh, four years. Uh, we have processed over 4 million test orders and um, we have done around 200,000 genetic tests uh, on the platform that are obviously far more uh, complicated and, and larger in data set than, than your normal A1C or uh, you know your, your normal um, LDL, HDL test, right? Um, so some of these genetic tests um, you get a million data points uh, that you have to process. So, uh, so you're 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 very much adding a lot of complex tests to the platform as well as just simple clinical tests. But that's that's a sort of the rate of growth. And um, you know, we we expect to 
be probably you know profitable by uh, 2024. So oh, that's wow. your sort of path in terms of execution. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. As as we wrap up here, I'm I'm curious. You know, as a, as a serial entrepreneur yourself, you know, you you this is not your first rodeo. You've done this before. Um, I guess what's what's your advice for you know? There's a lot of there's a million ideas out there, as you know. Like what's you know, when should an entrepreneur know? Like, hey, this is this is like something worth pursuing. This is like you know, I should really go all in on this or spend a significant amount of time or even potentially money as well. I guess what's what's kind of a tra- like the different ventures you've been involved with. What's kind of been the if there is a common theme among all of them that's attracted you to get involved. <laughs> There, there is. It's, it's really not a common theme. It's a. It, we live in a very complex world, and there's so many market segments and so many problem sets. I would say the 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 more important themes to pay attention to is the number one is your team, who you surround yourself with. Um, in regardless of what market you're in, the team is probably your number one. Uh, it's your biggest uh, area of focus that you should always recruit the best people around you and who have the right sort of culture, motivation, and 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 really sort of buy into the mission because building things is a very, very difficult process and you just can't pay people to love it. Uh, people have to come into this field where they love to doing what they're doing. Pay is like secondary, right? So I always sort of say, if you're if you're in a startup because of pay, you just you need to get out. This is not a job. <laughs> you know, this is a job of of passion and love and commitment. And and obviously the pay has to be good enough for you to have a nice nice lifestyle. But you know it has to be based on passion and mission. Uh, but outside of the team, get then it gets very complicated, right? So you have to ask a lot of questions around: um, Is the problem big enough? Is it an area that you're interested in solving? is the timing right? Does the world really need it solved today? Are they willing to focus on it? There are a lot of problems in the world that we just can't fix today because unfortunately we have a lot of other problems in front of us, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you're not in the top of the list, you're not going to get attention and focus. So you have to ask a lot of questions around market size, timing, uh, you know, competition, uh, are we are we ready to solve it? You know, do we have maturity of technology? Uh, you know, do we have regulatory barriers? There's a lot of sort of questions coming depending on what market segment you're in. But there is no simple answer. Um, you know, and and it's very unique to the market, right? For example, I really don't have a lot of insights to biotech or medical devices. I don't know. It's not my area of expertise. But I've built a lot of commerce platforms. I've built a lot of direct-to-consumer healthcare and enterprise. So those are the areas where I can sort of add some value. But also find mentors around you that know that space, right? Because that really matters what, what area you, you have experience of what you've done in the past, right? Sure, sure. I'm curious, just from a from a business partner standpoint, you know, because you you could almost look at a business partnership, and I don't have to tell you this is it's similar to I mean, it's almost like a marriage. I mean, it's like a you know, especially if you're going to share equity and and ownership and things like that, it's a legally binding relationship, and you know, it's not something you hope to you know you hope it to be a long term thing, not a you know two month long thing. So I'm curious what you know, because just because someone's a good friend of yours doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good business partner of yours. You know, I think sometimes people make that mistake of mixing personal relationships and business. I, I'm just curious from your standpoint, you've had a lot of experience doing this, like what, what kind of criteria or, or methods do you use for kind of selecting who you go into business with? Yeah. The, the first thing is you have to pick partners that have, uh, 
you know, very high ethics. And again, uh, overall, they have to be really good human beings that you trust and, and, and you feel like they're, they're uh, sort of their culture is aligned with you. Uh, outside of that, that's just the baseline, right? Then on top of it, you're asking the question of, of core competency and, and skill set. Like any of the team that you assemble, I'm sure people who are coaching basketball teams or football teams um, understand this intuitively, which is if the underlying uh, temperament and culture doesn't work, it doesn't matter what your talent is. The team dynamic just doesn't work. But if the culture and temperament works, then you're assembling a team based on skill sets, right? So it's like any other team you're building. You have to ask yourself, what are the skill sets that that you need to have in this team, and and you know who are those who are those sort of people that bring that skill set with the right culture and temperament, right? Uh, if the underlying culture doesn't work, you can hire the the biggest expert in in finance to join your team, but if the person just is culturally not a fit, it it would distort the execution of the team. So as a, as a as a sort of as a founder slash CEO, you're sort of a coach assembling a team and you have to pay attention to those dynamics, right? Do you have the right culture? Do you have the right temperament? And then do you have the right skill set in the team? You know, is everybody an extrovert and nobody is allowing anybody else to talk? You know, do you have enough introverts, extroverts? Do you have enough, you know, uh, problem solvers? Do you have enough doers? There are people who are very good at executing. There are people who are very good at planning. So you have to sort of balance out between your team members. Like, do you have enough of the skill set? And then you recognize who do you who do you lead with, right? So if you lead with the wrong person in the wrong sort of time or or segment of the market, then you have really awkward results, right? So it's like if you if you have these doers in your team who like to sort of shoot and ask question next, if you send them into new markets, you're going to be very surprised. But if you have more methodical people who analyze and do discovery, you know, you get better feedback. Um, so you have to sort of judge as to what market you're going into, what situation are you in the market, and then who in your team is leading that 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 sort of challenge, right? Sure, sure. No, that's that's great advice. It makes that makes a lot of sense. I guess my my last question, I, I ask every guest this, when you're not building companies or running One Health, what what, what are your passions? How do you find that balance if there is one? <laughs> yeah, I, I actually love learning. Uh, so just uh, my nature is I, I spend a lot of time with my kids and family and then I try to learn. So I watch a lot of documentaries, news, uh, read books, uh, read articles, um, have discussions with friends and then um you know uh, i love playing chess and i love playing uh with my son i play volleyball and soccer and you know stuff like that that's awesome awesome yeah. I, I guess last thing here is where where can people find out more about one health how, and and connect with yourself as well probably probably on the website is probably the best place to go and there's a there's a button you can set up a meeting and uh, you know, the team will, will immediately engage and tell you what we do and, and if it's a fit for your target market. Um, and I'm uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I Probably my contact information is everywhere, but I'm mm at uh, onehealth.io. Perfect, perfect. We'll definitely uh, link that stuff in the description. Uh, Mehdi, thanks again. I re- really enjoyed this I conversation. I really enjoyed it too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review 
and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.